Uh, right, it's uh, 19 minutes to 11 and we're going now to Wellington to talk to Colin Peacock for Midweek Media Watch. Hi Colin. Hi Karen. You wanted to start with the uh, disturbing, distressing scenes in the news on Sunday from Copenhagen when that uh, Danish footballer nearly died on the pitch, Christian yeah, Eriksson. Yeah, Christian Eriksson, it was terrible. He, he collapsed, had to be revived. Uh, most people, I think, would have seen it on the news by now, so it's one of those sports stories, I guess, which becomes um, front-page news and bulletin-leading stuff because it was so dramatic. Um, Denmark against Finland, he's a, a top Danish, one of Europe's top football players, really, home game, full stadium in, in Denmark, and it all unfolded on TV. His partner was in the stands and then later on the sidelines, um, worried out of her mind, as you can imagine. And all of this was broadcast live on TV because it was one of those situations where the tournament organiser provides a broadcast feed to all the countries around the world showing this. Um, And it kept showing fairly close shots of what was going on and lingered on the whole thing, which took about 15 minutes or more to unfold. So it gave broadcasters a huge dilemma, like what do they do back home in their own countries and control rooms? Do they show all this because it was it was dramatic and worrying? Do they keep broadcasting, turn the cameras off, just cut the feed altogether, show something else out of respect for the situation? Really difficult one. So what did they do? Well, in Denmark itself, where I guess people were going to be you know, most upset by this, their local broadcaster had some of their own outside broadcast to add to the whole experience. So they went to an overhead kind of drone shot of the stadium and then just talked about what was happening so anyone who came in late could have it explained to them why, you know, the action wasn't going on, which seemed to be quite a good way of dealing with it. Um, But the US-based global network ESPN, they were heavily criticised because they covered the entire thing for all their, you know, clients um, around the world. They went all the way up, actually, to um, the suspension of the match when when Ericsson was uh, taken away. So here's what that sounded like. And it's all gone quiet for understandable reasons in Copenhagen. Match suspended due to the medical emergency that we've all been taking in. That is hot off the press. Yeah, so some people objected both to all the, the fact that the coverage lingered so long up to that point, but also that that kind of breaking news language was employed, you know, the well, hot off the press, the game suspended, people felt that isn't really suitable for, you know, a potential tragedy. And that commentator is a veteran, Derek Ray, and he later uh, tweeted that that was the most difficult 10 minutes of his long commentary career, very hard to watch, he said, and little prayer emoji. Um, but that rubbed people up the wrong way too, because people pointed out, look, it was a lot longer than 10 minutes, and you know, it's really not about you and your long career, mate. Um, but he afterwards did an interview with a subscription website, The Athletic, and it was pretty clear from that he was, you know, really stressed out by it and the criticism. He doesn't want to ever see those images again, he said, or know anything about what people had to say about him. Um, so difficult for him because I guess he had to keep broadcasting until told not to because so many other countries and broadcasters were taking their feed. What about other broadcasters around the world? Did they bail out of the coverage altogether for the for the sake of the audience? 
Well, some did, but they took a while to get to that point, particularly uh, read a lot of criticism of the BBC in the UK because they carried on doing it for about 12 or 13 minutes. And then they went back to their studio, and I've seen some of that on YouTube. And they, their hosts and pundits, very experienced people, but they were really struggling to get on top of it. They found it so distressing, so that didn't really work either. Um, but interestingly, on the radio, the Radio News and Sport Network 5 Live at the BBC, which um, I used to spend a few years working at, actually, they took a different tack. Their um, their football daily podcast for the day was simply this. Team, now we would normally bring you a daily Euros episode every single day of the championship. But in light of events at the Parkin Stadium this evening in Copenhagen, where there was a medical emergency involving Denmark's Christian Eriksen during their game against Finland, we have decided that it didn't feel right to review the day's action. So simply our thoughts and our prayers go to Christian Eriksen and his family and we wish him a speedy recovery. Yeah, now that uh, Football Daily of the BBC, that's the biggest football, most downloaded podcast in the UK, possibly even the world. So I think it was quite a big deal for them to do that, particularly as there were two other games that day. One of them featured Wales, which is part of the UK, so their supporters would have been expecting that. But um, I listened to a couple of others, and one of them was uh, the Football Weekly show of The Guardians, and they decided to spend pretty much the entire thing talking about what happened and also the ethics of showing it. Um, The guy who did the live blog was almost in tears just talking about how stressful that was. They had a Danish guy on the team who said he'd actually spent more time over the years as a football journalist with um, in, the, in the presence of Christian Eriksen that he had with some of his own relatives and he said he went on the radio to talk about it, he was coaxed into doing it and he just felt it was wrong and he really regrets doing it and another one on their team is a French uh, football reporter Philippe Auclair now he talked about having seen something very similar happen a few years ago when an English uh, cup game was um, abandoned a guy called Fabrice Mwamba had his heart stop and he was revived as well he was interviewed a lot about that in the media this past week and talked about finding that pretty stressful too but Philippe said that you know the journalist in him made him feel like this uh, should be covered but he really couldn't do it things things can be terrible and, and, and be hurtful and painful but you've got to show them You've got to harden your eyes, not, to, not your heart. That's, that's the basis of it. But there's a moment when I think, I don't know, I, I'm asking you the question as well. I, I actually switched the television off, Max, after, after about five minutes of this because I couldn't take it. And, and then I went, I went to Twitter to get some information from people I trust, and, but I didn't want to see the images any, anymore because I felt a bit guilty by association. Yeah, I quite like what he said there. You have to harden your eyes as a journalist, but not your heart. Uh, but yeah, he, he obviously couldn't couldn't take much more of that uh, that sort of elongated crisis. And uh, you know, he wasn't the only one that felt that way. And it has to be said that Christian Eriksen has recovered. He's in hospital. He's uh, sent a message to his supporters from hospital. I didn't actually see it, but was he being revived with a defib- what do you call it defibrillator? On the field. Yes, the doctor has talked about that, done his own press conferences. But, you know, the players formed that kind of screen around him. If You might have seen those images in the paper on TV. They formed a circle. The captain, Simon Kier, um, organised that. 
and because they didn't want the medical team to be stressed out by being you know under the gaze of of, uh, of the cameras and also Christian Eriksen himself of course um, so that was quite clever what they did there but one Reuters photographer incidentally took did get a snap of as he was being stretched away a kind of grainy long lens thing of Eriksen lifting his head and he, his eyes appeared to be open so that image went around the world almost immediately um, and people found that reassuring you know he, he appeared to be alive and conscious which was great so on one hand that's really intrusive, and that's what the players were partly worried about, that this whole thing was being under the glare of, of cameras, um, both, you know, moving and still. Um, but, you know, that image, yes, did reassure people, and as, as it turned out, you know, within a couple of hours, uh, he, the player himself had given us... They actually played the match. They carried on and finished it uh, later in the day, and uh, with, with apparently his approval. So... Even though it was intrusive, people did find that they were grateful for, you know, that image of the Reuters photographer gave people reassurance. And, you know, some people would have been watching the TV footage and wanting it to continue because they wanted to see him safely carried away. It wasn't necessarily voyeuristic. So all of this would have been going on in the minds, I guess, of directors and editors and uh, finding it really, really hard, knowing that a large part of the audience were thinking, oh, you simply shouldn't be showing this stuff because it's, you know, it could be a guy, you know, literally checking out on live TV. Yeah, for want of a better term, perhaps there'll be a style guide now for things of this nature that happen in events. You would sort of think that there would be one already. That's what I was thinking. That nobody seemed to know what to do or what was the appropriate thing to do. I mean, the broadcasters now turn away all the time from streakers and pitch invaders. These days, they're also worried about um, guerrilla marketers, you know, people running in with a, a website painted on their back or something and running around um, on a football or rugby pitch. That's happened. In Russia, where the last World Cup was, there were some political uh, invasions of the pitch. They were very worried about that and broadcasters were um, told in no uncertain terms the host broadcaster that that wasn't to be shown or as little as possible. So if there, and these days I guess you'd have to be prepared for some sort of you know, potential violence or active terrorism or something like that at a really big event. So there must be a playbook for this sort of thing. But for these medical emergencies, yeah, it seems like no one quite knew what to do. But yeah, hopefully this, this situation might um, encourage them to, uh, to get some guidelines ready. And on to the launch of GB News and for news hounds, uh, this was huge news in the UK, supposedly an alternative TV news channel uh, described by many as Fox News for the UK. That's right. And actually not just in, in the UK, but around the world, even places like here in New Zealand, where we've had some broadcasters saying, you know, that the media is too restrictive and ignoring too many people, not responsive to the needs of ordinary people. And a new kind of channel or, or something would, would be an idea. So they'll be watching this too. But GB News is the new outlet it launched on Monday. Um, the organisers actually said, look, it's not Fox News for the UK. Forget that. It is non-ideological, they said. Um, the guy who's actually running it, the director, says, look, it's not rolling news. You know, They've already got that in the UK times two. Uh, this will be original news and opinion uh, round the clock and what they call appointment-to-view programming. So a few hosts with a you know, long slab of time each to fill and people will tune in uh, to, to listen to the ones they like. I guess that's the idea. The driving force and the actual chair of it, as well as this guy Andrew Neil, who's a very respected uh, veteran journalist and broadcaster, done a lot of stuff with the BBC. But in recent years, he's clearly decided the media is just too, um, well, he says they're biased and basically too elitist to represent the opinions and concerns of most people uh, in Britain. 
And he said, he actually told uh, the BBC's media show just before they launched, he'll show the way with his own show on the channel and um, they might even take on the media while they're doing it. We'll do a main interview if we can get one. Not, we won't do an interview if it's only the Minister for Paperclips. Uh, and uh, I want to do a media watch, including a media watch that holds ourselves to account. I think when we get things wrong, we've got to put our hands up and say we got this wrong but also hold other media to account as well. You do that, don't you, Colin? <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine that media watcher, that'll never take off. But no, I did actually try to check in on his first show and see. Unfortunately, the whole thing is not up there, so I don't know if he did an actual media watch segment. Uh, it's just little bits and pieces they morsalise for the site. I like mean, you... hold yourself to account. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Plenty of other people will do that as well, so that that's fine. Um, but look, there's no sign of them holding themselves to account right now. Actually, another thing I should have mentioned earlier, there's some New Zealand connections with this, which is um, a billionaire, Christopher Chandler, has been named as one of the big backers of it. Discovery Channel, which owns TV3 here, has also uh, supported it. And uh, Dan Wharton, formerly of the Dominion Post, then a showbiz uh, journalist at The Sun, rose to become an executive editor there for Rupert Murdoch, then became a kind of radio and TV talk opinion kind of host. He's one of the mainstay hosts on this new channel. Uh, GB News very strongly pushing an anti-lockdown message in the opening days of the channel. What's it like though, the whole thing? It had some sound and vision problems, didn't it? Yeah, and almost unwatchable, partly just for those reasons. But I mean, it is it is really, really poor. And, you know, maybe you have to cut them some slack. It's early days. It's a new thing technical gremlins to be expected but it really looks like it was launched well before it was ready the studios are extremely dark um having they promised state-of-the-art facilities and it looks anything but that the sound is as you mentioned it's awful sometimes they cross to guests uh who might be in the field or in another studio and you just simply can't hear them the presenters look really ill at ease and i mean it's no easy thing filling these hours and hours of airtime on camera all the time um but actually, that's the funny thing. On day one, I tuned in, and most of the content was actually just Andrew Neil himself, the main man, uh, interviewing the other hosts of their shows about what their shows would be about and how they'll present them. It, it's a bit, a bit like this. Colin Brazier and Mercy Maroke will be challenging mainstream conversation. And they join me now from our sofa area. We have so many areas to go to, go to here. Let's go to, to this one here. Um, Colin, just seeing you in the run-up to the launch of our channel, I kind of got the feeling you're champing at the bit to get going. <laughs> I am. Andrew, I am. <laughs> Understatement. It's, it's so awkward. I mean, you see that there were two of them side by side. They're twitching. They, I am. I'm really looking forward to this. And from one dimly lit sofa and studio to another. In fact, um, someone on Twitter said of Andrew Neal himself, he looks like he's all made up with this yellowy orange makeup. He looks like... Um, what is it, the honey monster ranting inside a shipping crate. And that kind of what it looks and sounds like. Yeah, not, not good. Yeah, in this day and age, you think they'd get those two basics right, wouldn't you? Uh, OK, new survey from NZME got your attention, and this is about the cycle bridge? <laughs> well, it's not actually. It's, it's about not. it's about their own uh, customers. So, I mean, a few media organisations, all sorts of businesses are doing this. They've surveyed the public about their own um, lifestyles and habits and how everything's changing post-COVID. So this is uh, the NZME 2021 Lifestyle Survey, NZME being the outfit that owns um, 
E, News Talk ZB and the New Zealand Herald and um, you know half the country's radio stations as well as ZB. Uh, so yes, Lifestyle Survey, how we're we doing, it's called. And they sent out this press release saying um, the uh, the chief editor, Shane Carey of, of the company, saying we're always examining the impacts COVID is having on people in the Kiwi way of life and this will provide an additional springboard into our content and stories. And uh, interesting, one of the findings, over a third of us, are exercising more outdoors than we were a year ago. Now, given that quite a few people will be doing this on a bike, I wonder if that will impact um, NZME's pretty hostile coverage of uh, cycling and in particular that bridge over the harbour for cyclists and walkers that uh, so many of their hosts have had uh, not much nice to say about. Aha, uh-huh, I see the link. And what's been said? It's been, you've featured a lot on Media Watch, haven't you? Yeah, so I should probably shut up because over the last two weeks we've done that on the programme because there has been so much of it. But um, even, and now, of course, they're moving on to EVs and um, and things like that. So imagine with the news about pedestrianising Wellington, there'll be a kind of siren going off in the News Talk ZB newsroom and all the hosts' homes, um, getting them to prepare their comment about that, I imagine. But uh, there was an editorial um, in the Herald on Monday uh, last week saying, uh, we back the bridge, the government should persist with it. But on Sunday, in the Herald on Sunday, Heather Duplessy-Ellen again wrote this thing about, look, Ashburton needs a bridge. The floods have hit their previous one. 30 million would buy them a new bridge, and the government says no. They keep saying this, and it really isn't true. I mean, it's, Ashburton can't agree, its council and, and Waka Kotahi can't agree on how to fund that bridge. It's not the government that's saying no to a bridge in Ashburton, and they keep saying it is. They keep saying you could spend... Uh, the money on nurses' pay and not on a bridge. Separate funds, you know, capital projects, nothing to do with the health budget. So, yeah, they keep running these lines, and I don't think it quite tallies with uh, what their own surveys are telling them about their own customers. Uh, Text here from someone who says, Cycling UCI has a protocol for covering serious injury accidents in road racing. No close-ups, minimal visual coverage for the sake of family and loved ones, with verbal updates when info comes to hand. Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good way of doing it. But I guess part of the problem is when you've got um I'm sure people put their feet up when they've got a live studio operation going on and then suddenly it's suspended. I guess the you know is is the studio ready to go back and if you're a broadcaster that's going out to a whole range of of studios that won't be ready, maybe they feel an obligation to carry on at least give their host broadcasters the option to do it. But um you know there's that whole question I mean should you expect sports people to suddenly cover what is a very, I mean, it's become a news event. I mean, forget the sports. This is about a, a you know famous person being in peril. And uh, I mean, this has happened before. I can recall years ago when I worked in England, um, a pipe bomb went off at the Atlanta Olympics. And the BBC had no means of actually getting rolling news on the air at that point. Um, it was that long ago. And their sports team had to carry live breaking coverage of you know what was you know potentially an act of terrorism and their sports guys really weren't up to it um at at this makeshift studio in atlanta and it was awful it was that that persuaded the bbc actually they needed to invest in 24-hour local uh, television news which to this day not all that many people watch but they were so badly caught out by a major event that they figured they had to do it so yeah there are reasons i guess to do it but these are not easy choices i think for editors when the unexpected happens